Hi everyone. So we've been on a journey together and we're coming hopefully to the last episode, although I should warn obviously there's so much infinitely more to learn about Hanukkah, but hopefully we've seen how some of its themes tie from literally the beginning of creation to Mashiach, to, to the world to come in fact, and how these different parts of the original persona of Yaakov or Jacob and his two wives and two uh, and his different sons are parts that we recognize in ourselves, parts that want to go out into the world, parts that want to, to sit back and kind of let history happen and, and leave the world around us and just focus on what's going to be our development to get the world to perfection, but how we need to work on our inner integrity and that, uh, that sense of, I let go and, and let just let Hashem's truth be there. Moshe Rabbeinu kind of thing that, that operates within us, Netzach, and the hoid of, but I want to step into every situation and give what's demanded in that situation that then allows me to impact the world now and allows me to connect it to the future. We discover that it's in Aharon, in, in Aaron, the one who brings love and peace in every situation, asks God how to bring light into that moment that ultimately is the key to the whole of Hanukkah and how in his grandson, in Pinchas, it became that little delicate line between kina, control and jealousy versus letting go and kana us and just love and care in every single moment. Two, a knife edge difference, but getting that right is the difference between getting the darkness of Greece and falling apart as a nation. Right? If we need jealousy and control, we will always fall apart. And each attribute we will be will be in opposition to another. We'll be torn apart internally. I'll be torn apart nationally. Jealousy and control can tear apart families so easily. When it becomes kanaus instead, the love and care and how do I do the right thing in this situation, even if someone else wrongs me, that starts to become a right thing. Sometimes it might, might be to cut somebody off. Sometimes it does involve killing somebody to save somebody else. Sometimes it involves actions that are not so nice, but it's always coming from what's the right loving act to everybody around me right now. No jealousy, no fear, no resentment, no anger, no pride, no, none of this stuff. Just that pure voice. That's the voice of Hanukkah, the voice of the menorah in every situation. And in fact, if we look amazingly, historically, Greece was typically very religiously tolerant. Right. Although we find the rabbis attached to the darkness of the first day of the Torah because of their desire to control everything, normally they were tolerant. Why exactly Antiochus IV decided at that particular moment to oppress Jews may have been the result of his military defeat in Egypt a bit earlier. And that kind of sense of shame and whatever it was, whatever it was that motivated him, it might have been the struggles between the Jewish people at that moment, whatever it was. When we read the Megillah Antiochus, one of the sources that we have that describes the Hanukkah events going back a long way, about which of Sadia Gaon, the great, one of the great Gaonim, great, great uh, rabbis in the era of, of the kind of the era when the, the Talmudic texts were kind of being settled and all of Judaism was mostly based in the Babylonian world between about the year 500 and 1000. And he writes one of the first ever major philosophical works of, of Judaism. And he says, Matt, you can rely on the book of Antiochus, the Megillah Antiochus. It's not a canonized text, not part of Tanakh, but it's a good one to learn the history from. There they bring that, in fact, the central decrees against the Jewish people were not against all 613 mitzvot, against not, not all 613 mitzvot's obligations. It was very selected. Now, local Greek governors may have, uh, Syrian Greek governors and, and local Jewish Hellenists may have been pushing other things too, but the central obligations they pushed are quite surprising. One of them is circumcision, Rismila. That, that makes sense because the Greeks had this sense of the perfect form of the human. They did their games without clothes on and they had statues of that. So they didn't like that. And it's a mark of being Jewish. Shabbos makes a lot of sense. Shabbat is like, that's, that's the emblem of the Jewish people. That, but then the, we don't find, for example, banning kosher. We don't find banning shuls. There were in, in the second temple, there was already synagogues around doesn't seem that they were banned, or at least not centrally and generally. Um, certain family purity doesn't seem to have generally been banned. The, the, um, most of the Amintov and the festivals don't seem to have been banned. The third thing they pick is Kiddush HaChodesh, sanctifying the new moon 
by testimony. What does that mean? That means that in the days of the Torah, in the days of the first and second temples, when you were in Israel, the new moon, the new month didn't come into being, right? Until somebody had seen literally the moon waxes and wanes, right? Every day towards the end of a month, it gets smaller, 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 a real lunar month, and then it gets bigger again. It becomes, but it's not a precise cycle. It's between 29 and 30 days. And so, you know, in the Torah's law is that you shouldn't declare the new month until witnesses have seen it, gone to the rabbinic courts and had it uh, cross-examined and verified that the Greeks ban and also the courts decide each year whether it adds an extra month in so the lunar year catches up with the solar year. Now, what happens if we're going to remove that is we had a backup plan. What did we do when we were in exile in Babylon and we couldn't do it the original way? What did we do if it's cloudy for a week as it could be in the winter? We have a calendar. And our calendar is based on a tradition that is accurate to fractions of a second, right? We use it now. It doesn't need amending for 14,000 years. It's so precise and perfect. So we're just going to use the calendar. And the Greeks knew about that. They also had calendars, maybe not as accurate as ours, but pretty good calendars. They knew that's what we're going to do. So what are they trying to do? Make life easier for us? And then the fourth decree they come and ban is Torah study. But it seems the primary effort was not made against the written Torah, but against the oral Torah. Now, what does that mean? Why were they attacking the oral Torah? The problem is it's an utterly unenforceable decree, right? Is that the oral Torah was oral. People were speaking. So what are you going to do? Stop people speaking? The written Torah was written down. Had they come to get us to really get rid of the written Torah, Khalila, God forbid, they could have found every written Torah. God forbid, Chasron burnt it, right? You know, you know, but that would have got rid of, 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 that would have caused huge damage. But that doesn't seem to be what they did. They were trying to ban rabbinic law, teaching Torah, studying. It's not enforceable. So it's obvious that these four contain an ideological component that they're against. And of course, that ideological component links to what we discussed in previous episodes of the attributes of Netzach and Hoid. Netzach, the eternity of God, but manifest not so much through what Moshe gives us, but what Aharon brings out. The interrelationships in the people that bring out Torah. Let's explain how this works. You see... There's a Tanchum, a very famous Medrash, that discusses Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus is a Roman general many, many, many uh, decades or centuries after the Hanukkah story. And this is at the time of the Bar Kochba revolt, and he, in the end, kills Rabbi Akiva. But before then, at some point, he and Rabbi Akiva, he debated him. And one of the debates that's very, very famous is where Turnus Rufus says, Rabbi Akiva, what's greater, the work of God or the work of man? And you almost expect Rabbi Akiva to say, of course, the work of God. But he doesn't. He takes out wheat and says, this is the work of God. And then he takes out a finished bread or cake and says, this is the work of man. And the understanding of that is comes about in the next bit, because then Turnus Rufus says, well, if Hashem wanted, uh, if God wanted man to be um, circumcised, to be Tomim, perfect, that's what Hashem says to Abram, to Avraham, that go before me and achieve perfection through circumcision. If that's perfection, why didn't he make you circumcised? And Rabbi Akiva responds and says, and do you cut the umbilical cord? Like you think, what was this like, non sequitur discussion going on? And the answer is that no. Turnus Rufus and Rabbi Akiva have other debates, and it's always the same theme. What Turnus Rufus is saying is this. I think there's lots of gods, you think there's one. Let's not debate theology. I believe, as the Greeks believed, and has been a kind of belief prevalent in centuries afterwards, that the natural world is in its ideal state. A human can work on themselves and achieve certain things, but not others. Right, that we celebrate the natural world, we study the natural world, we control the natural world. 
That's what we do. That's what the Greeks excelled in. We look at the games, and the games celebrate which body is, in modern language, genetically endowed with those strongest genes, the fastest genes, right? 99.99% of humans can never, ever win. In the game. You're not, you and I, well, I don't know who you are. Maybe you're an Olympic sprinter. But unless you are, you're, you're probably one of those people in the world that's almost every human who could never win an Olympic 100-meter sprint, even if you trained your whole life, right? I certainly couldn't, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But which body has been endowed with the most perfect form, the most perfect sprinting ability? That's what we celebrate. Yes, the Greeks at some points thought about working on some attributes, but for the most part looked at the world as the nation that's the most powerful is meant to rule. People are the more powerful are meant to rule. People have certain natural attributes are meant to. And so, for example, you have Aristotle believing that, that disabled children should be killed. That was a very prevalent belief in Greek society because they're not really very naturally capable of doing much in the world. And if too, too many children are born, then some must also be exposed. Aristotle writes this in Politics, Book 7, because the world has to run a certain natural order and how many people work and how many people farm, and that's how you look at it, right? Or Greeks thought war was a glorified thing, not peace, because warriorship exhibits natural power over people, right? And so on. Uh, they didn't really think of social responsibility. If somebody was born in a poor class or, or not a land-owning class, they weren't expected to vote or be part of, of the elites of society. And Aristotle said, yeah, some people are meant to be born this way or that way or slavehood or different stratified people. And Yisrael, Israel comes in and says, no, 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 we've got a vision, a divine vision. And it looks like this. Every single child has a right to life, even if they're disabled. Too many born that year, work harder. Everyone is Tzalem Elohim, the image of God. Ideal of the world is peace. The prophet Isaiah shares God's vision. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. None shall they learn any more war. We're not going with the natural order. The natural order is the imperfection of the world. That's not what we're here for. We're here to be part of partners with, with the creator of the universe in bringing the world to perfection. And so Tonus Rufus says, let's forget lots of, but do you think you could do better than God? Let's agree with you. There's one God who created the world. You think you could do better than God? Okay, within it, there's some wiggle room to, to self-develop and, and meditate and purify your inner self, which you do find in Greek thought, right? But none of this changing the whole world, says Rabbi Akiva, what are you talking about? Hashem produces wheat. You and I can't produce wheat. It's a miracle. It's incredible. One day, maybe he'll give us the keys of producing wheat, but right now we don't have it, says Rabbi Akiva. But wheat's not the finished product. It's a raw material. And Hashem gives us this incompleted world for us to grind it, turn it into flour, right? knead it, add water, turn it into dough, bake it, turn it into bread and a cake. Hashem's given us an incomplete world. He wants us to be his partners in bringing it to perfection. At, but not by the exertion of power like you guys believe in, but by every single moment caring about it like an hour on type. And then we can do our Yosef and bring things to perfection, actually impact society. And then we can prepare it for Yehuda, for the ultimate delivery of the Messianic era. Says Turnus Rufus, but you do circumcision on a body. Why didn't Hashem make it circumcised? Says Rabbi Kibbe, you cut the umbilical cord. The baby is not born perfected. From the word go, it needs intervention. And that's the whole point. We need to show it from the word go that it needs to sacrifice. And certain, it's part of the body that can reproduce and produce life and holiness can also be a part that can lead it astray and be dangerous. And we need to understand that we have to work on ourselves. Each one of the things that they try to ban in Hanukkah teaches this. Shabbos more than all the other festivals, because Shabbos is me'ein olam haba. We travel into the future one day a week. We travel into the way the world will be in the future. That's what we do. A world where there's no more work to be done. And we go there so that we are citizens of the future. So that when we come back into the present, we visit the Mashiach era of King David so that we can go back into the Yosef world of how do we now work the six days 
not to have power now, but to do the right things now that it will lead to that perfection in the future. That idea that we are partners to radically transform the whole world, that's an anathema to the Greek vision of, no, 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 we're here to study the world, manipulate it and some, but as it is now, says the Jew, no, no, no. Shabbos Shalom, that's the greeting, Shabbat Shalom, right? The world of peace, not war. The world of God's presence, not human dominance. The world where we do not control, not the world where we do control. That's what we're here to do. Partners to bring that world into reality, change the whole world. Kiddush HaKadosh says with partners, sanctifying the moon by, by visual means, even the most naturally powerful thing, which is the calendar and prediction and season, it's also a partnership. Hashem's given it to us to partner, to decide when the holy days come, and, and even to decide which months intervene. And we're partners with Hashem in every part of the world. And finally, the Torah, the written Torah, Moshe Torah, that, yeah, I get that. The Greek can say, you know what? Tell us the divine law. We can accept that. We might not agree, but we can accept it. Tell us your partners that you study the Torah, the Sanhedrin, the supreme rabbinic body studies it, and hears different possibilities, shivin upon him, 70 faces of Torah. For the 70 members of Yaakov's family, Jacob's family that go down to Egypt, the 70 elders who sit on the Sanhedrin, 70 faces of the Torah, each one brings out another one. Which becomes the law? The one they vote on and choose. The Gemara that says that Revelyezer, the greatest of all of them, argued with them all and said, if the law's like me, I could show miracles will happen, right? If the law's like me, you can't argue against me because if the law's like me, having brought all the proofs and the rabbis don't listen to him, the carob tree will prove it and they look outside and the carob tree's uprooted. Maybe a miracle happened, maybe a storm came, that's also a miracle at that moment, uproots the carob tree. If the law's like me, the river will flow the other way. Nature will unfold if you do not bring the Torah, God's will into the world in the right way. The rabbis say we're not studying carob trees and river flows. We're studying Torah. The laws like me, says Rebeliezer, the walls of this study hall will prove it and they begin to cave in. They're suspended, not to, right, because the other rabbis disagree. If the laws like me, says Rebeliezer, they will prove it from heaven. Let them declare it from heaven. Yotza Baskal, the heavenly echo, comes out and says, Malachem Rebeliezer, what are you arguing against Rabbi Eliezer? The law follows him everywhere. For you and me, that will be game, set, and match. There's nothing more to discuss. They've declared it from heaven. That's truth. Ahmad Rabbi Shur Baraglov, but Rabbi Yeshua stands on his feet and says, we don't listen to heavenly echoes because the Torah itself says, it's not in heaven anymore. The written Torah is as it is. The halacha of Moshe Sinai, the laws that are transmitted to Moshe and Sinai are exactly as they are. They're from heaven. But the interpretation of Torah, God speaks and man listens. And what we hear in that relationship is no longer in heaven. It's now on earth. What the majority of the 70 elders hear, the Rambam says you could, they could even change it generation to generation without even being greater. The Rambam in Hilchus Mamram, the laws of, of rebels, and teach us this, that that part, the interpretation of Torah, can change in every generation. As the representatives of the generation listen, and in the relationship between God and man, the oral Torah is formed. Of course, you need to have a body like that, which we don't have nowadays. And they have the right to even legislate laws and create certain boundaries around the, the people. It's a man-God relationship. That to the, the Greek thinking, no, 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 let it be the, the natural order superimposed on us and we have to control it and pap, that's it. And that's what they're trying to eliminate, even if it's almost impossible to. And that's exactly the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story says we are here to be partners with God in bringing God's light to the world. Moshe and Aaron, Yosef and David. These are the partnership that we bring into the world. When we step back and say, God, you're in charge, but then we step forward and say, okay, what light do you want me to bring in right now? And then we become Yosef and then we prepare for Yehuda, for the arrival of Mashiach. And that is exactly what happens going back to how we began on the first day of creation. 
God said in the darkness, let there be light. And God shone that light for Adam, for the first man, who was 36 hours in the Garden of Eden, created midway through the sixth day, there till the end of Shabbos, 36 hours of light. But when man fell, God called out, Ayaka, where are you? Those same letters later tragically became Eicha, the darkness, woe, lamentation, the cry we utter when the Beis when the temple is destroyed and darkness falls into the world, the great abyss. And says the Medrash, the commentary, Midrashic ancient rabbinic commentary on Eicha, the word Ayaka, where are you? What's happened to the light I shine in the world? What darkness have you brought to the world? Has a gematria, a numerical total of all its letters, 36. God says what happened to the 36 hours of light that I brought into the world, now it's your job to bring them back. And that's why it's now our job to bring that light into every interaction in the world, the light that will be the light of the world to come. Those 36 hours of light that shine through the 36 righteous hidden tzaddikim in every generation, that shone through Yaakov as we went through a few episodes ago when Jacob and Yaakov himself brings the light back into the world and gets the name Israel as he brings the light into the darkness. The light comes for him. That word lo comes for him is 36. That his wife's 36. Rachel, who lives 36 years, Leah, the gematria of her name is 36. And why it is when he's buried that the Medrash says they put coffins, crowns on his coffin, 36. Because that's our job to be, change the world, to be partners of God in the world, to bring back his light into the world. That's why on Hanukkah, we have all these different aspects. It's eight days like circumcision. It contains a Shabbos. It contains a new month. And it's created by the oral Torah. That's what it is. And that's why on Hanukkah, we, we each light a light to celebrate the light that we can bring. Each one of us can bring God's light into the world in everything we do everywhere, just like the menorah and the Beis HaMikdash. And that's why the Mahadrin, those who bring beauty, don't just light one light per home. Yes, each family is meant to bring light into the world, but every single member of the family lights too, as if to say we all have a unique light to bring into the world. And the Mahadrin Min HaMahadrin, those who bring beauty upon beauty, add extra light each day, because every day we have new light to bring. And that's why they're one and two and three and four, become the 36 lights, become the echo of that light of creation. And so in the very first day of creation, there was chaos, and there was emptiness, and there was darkness, on the face of the abyss. And that darkness was Greece. They said, right on the horn of an ox that symbolizes Yosef and the golden calf, you Jews, we have no portion in the God of Israel. We have no relationship with God. God does the natural world. We try to control and manipulate as best we can, but we're stuck under it. We celebrate it, study it, but we accept it as it is. No, we say, we have the portion with God. We have a relationship with God and we are bringing the light. When God said at the end of that first day, we listen and let the, hear the spirit of God. God says, let there be light. We hear that not just as an act of creation, but an instruction to us. We will bring that light. That is Hanukkah. God, we're listening to you. You're telling us to bring light. Aaron lights the menorah in every act he ever does who brings that kanos, not control, but that passionate can love that allows Yosef to shine as a tzaddik, the lights of the menorah, the halal, to bring praise to God. And Yehuda who brings hod, that admission and submission, that together, we say to God, we thank you. You're running the world, not us. We bring your praise into the world because that's what you ask from us. That's some of the light of Hanukkah. 
I hope this has allowed us to touch at least some of the layers of Hanukkah. Of course, there's infinitely more. But hopefully it's been something of value to you, to me, and to everybody listening here to be able to bring our light into the world. May we succeed in shining the light into the world. May we have what they call the Lichtig in Hanukkah. Some talk about the light and lit up Hanukkah, Freilich and Hanukkah, a joyful Hanukkah, Sameach Hanukkah, full of joy as each of us merits to bring our light into the world. And then that we'll merit to see, please God, how that becomes the, the beauty of Yosef and the Mashiach of David. May we merit to see it through our acts, through our light, speedily in our days. Amen.